Thanks for hitting play. If you love exploring how to do school different so you can make a legendary impact on your campus, then you're in the right place. I'm Danny Bauer, and this is the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, the original ruckus maker podcast for visionary leaders, innovators, and rebels in education. Thanks to ruckus makers just like you, this podcast ranks in the top 0.5% of over 3 million worldwide podcasts. In today's conversation, I speak with Dr. Eric Potteret, a clinical and performance psychologist and a leading expert in individual and organizational performance optimization. Eric retired as a commander from the U.S. Navy after 20 years of service, during which he helped create the mental toughness curriculum used during Navy SEALs BUDS training. Eric spent several years as the Director of Specialized Performance for the Los Angeles Dodgers and has also worked with Red Bull athletes, the U.S. women's national soccer team, the Miami Heat, and numerous Olympic athletes, first responders, business leaders, and NASA astronauts. He's been the performance psychologist on teams that have won the MLB World Series and the FIFA World Cup. In today's conversation, we cover topics like can excellence be learned, how baseball teams profile relief pitchers and what that means for your interview process, why we are better at planning vacations than achieving our goals, why your calendar matters, and one activity that will improve your performance in just two minutes. So once again, thanks for listening, and we'll be right back after a quick message from our show sponsors. Hey, Ruckus Maker, I'll make this quick. If you're listening to this message right now, you're missing out. When you subscribe to the Ruckus Maker newsletter on Substack, you get access to microbooks focused on how to do school different, tools and other resources that will help you make a ruckus and do school different, Stories and case studies of the world's most legendary ruckus makers of all time. Access to my calendar to schedule coaching sessions. And you'll also get bonus podcast content that won't be released on the main podcast feed and podcast episodes without any advertisements. So if you love this show, if it's helped you grow and you want access to more tools and resources that will help you make a ruckus and do school different, and become a paid subscriber at ruckusmakers.substack.com. That's ruckusmakers.substack.com. The truth is, most leaders weren't taught a robust way to set their goals. Everyone knows how to choose a goal, write the to-do list, and pick a due date. And as a result, they're not optimizing their potential. When you download the Ruckus Maker 8-step goal-setting tool, I'll send you the tool in a short 8-minute coaching video that shows you how to work smarter, not harder, and to create more value for your campus. Are you ready to accomplish more with less effort and in less time? Download the Ruckus Maker 8-Step Goal Setting Tool by going to betterleadersbetterschools.com slash goals. IXL is a go-to support for classroom teachers because its adaptive platform makes differentiated instruction easy. See for yourself and get started today at IXL.com slash leaders. That's IXL.com slash leaders. How 
would you like to increase student talk by an average of 40%? More student ownership, more student discourse. Check it out for yourself by trying out TeachFX. Go to teachfx.com forward slash better leaders to pilot their program today. One way to do school different is to shift students who need constant handholding and prodding to succeed to teaching them the skills to succeed independently. That's where executive functions for every classroom comes in, which you can get today when you go to organizebinder.com slash book. So head over to organizebinder.com slash book and pick up your copy of Executive Functions for Every Classroom. All right, Eric Potterett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, so I, I just want to uh, set the context for the listener, the ruckus maker that's listening to the show. Your book, I love it. And uh, it's all about leadership, right? It's about performance, about excellence. And so people will see why, why I'm so excited. And just saying, you know, ruckus maker, before you even hear a word uh, from Eric, get the book. I'm really encouraging you to uh, check it out. It's ruckus maker approved. So let, let's start with um, mental toughness. And from what I, you know, I think I read, uh, you created a curriculum at the Seal Bud School, and that actually opened up a door then working with the LA Dodgers, which, you know, that's pretty wild. But can you tell us that story? Yeah, you bet. No, thanks. It's obviously I did 30 years in the, I'm sorry, I did 20 years in the military, 30 year career. My 20 years in the military, my last 10 of those years was as the performance clinical psychologist for the Navy SEALs. So my first tour with the SEALs was, as you precisely said, at BUDS, where kind of SEALs are made, if you will. And my charter, my job there, the first role was to create a kind of codified framework for mental toughness and how do we teach empirically-based, uh, evidence-based principles to those who are becoming Navy SEALs. And that was that was a process. You know, that took a good two and a half, three years to kind of validate a curriculum because it had to be evidence-based and really modified the program around four main principles, goal setting and segmenting, what we call arousal control or kind of controlling the human stress response through breathing visualization and positive self-talk slash thought management. So those were kind of known as the big four. Really did a deeper dive on, again, building the framework on how to teach soon-to-be SEALs and then ultimately as they graduate buds and become deployable SEALs doing our nation's work. So I, I feel really comfortable about how that program evolved and really started to deliver on arming, if you will, from the neck up and between the ears, uh, those principles. And then to answer your question directly, I stayed with the SEALs as their performance psychologist for 10 years. I announced my retirement, which was at the end of 20, a 20-year 20 career. And the Los Angeles Dodgers made me an offer I couldn't refuse. I wanted, they had come to buds. They had been aware of the, you know, the principles and, and the framework that was being taught. I won't bore you with the details, but it led to various lunches and whatnot. And they essentially offer me a position to create from scratch, essentially move over the non-classified things that we could move over and really change semantics around rather than warrior. Hey, how do we, how do we draft an athlete? How do we draft a baseball player? And then how do we kind of weaponize or modify 
above the neck and between the ears, evidence-based principles. So yeah, it was great. I stayed with the Dodgers for seven years and was very successful. And then I just wanted to move on and kind of retire and do the book, et cetera. So. Right. So you mentioned that in the book too, and you've said it a couple of times here in our conversation, but the neck, you know, above the neck and between the ears seems to be a big focus, right? When it comes to performance and excellence. And it's sort of, it's probably, I shouldn't say sort of, it's almost completely glossed over in like principal development programs, right? <laughs> I concur. It tends to yeah. be like in my 30-year career, I've worked with roughly about 25,000, the world's best performers in multiple different disciplines, right? The military, yeah. professional sport, business, law, uh, medicine, et cetera, first responders. And I think you hit the nail on the head. When you look at the research of the biggest differentiator between the best and the rest, not to sound too crass, it really is what's going on above the neck and between the ears. And ironically, those principles are all learned. Like there's zero evidence that these principles are in, sure. you know, we possess them from birth. So you know, that, that got Alan and I passionate about kind of doing this book and trying to deliver actionable, practical, applicable techniques and principles and disciplines that anyone could use. So. Yeah. Well, there's there's tons of practical activities that a ruckus maker read in the book will get out of it. And I just want to uh, sort of spoil the surprise. But at the end, there's even 30, 90, 100 day action plans. So not only do you give, you know, practice these things in order to get better. When a reader has a question, well, how do I even begin? You provide roadmaps as well for uh, success. But I, I want to go back to sort of like this idea of above the neck and between the ears and I'd love to hear you riff on visualization, right? I, I have an understanding of what that is and try to use it, especially when I'm giving a, a talk, like keynote or a workshop to, you know, yeah. hundreds of people or whatever. But again, it's something that I don't think a lot of principals, right, or school leaders are applying, but we know, right? SEALs are using it. I know the top athletes are for sure using this kind of stuff. And so what, what could you share on the show about visualization? Yeah, I, first off, I think this is a, a technique that ought to be employed and deployed and used by our youth, hands down. I mean, period. I'll just, I'll say that right off the bat. The reason visualization is so powerful as a technique, as a kind of mental toughness or mental strategy is principally, it, it is designed around something called stress inoculation. The idea behind stress inoculation is if we give the human being a little bit of a bad thing. Sync vaccinations. Like if I go today, tomorrow, next week to get a flu vaccine, the idea behind a flu vaccine is the vaccine is giving my body a little bit of a bad thing in the hopes that when my body actually sees that strain of flu, uh, it copes better. It has an immune response. It's, it's ready. It's prepared. It, it deploys the necessary defense mechanisms around that. So if we take the stress inoculation vaccination model and we apply it to human performance and psychology, if we can get individuals to visualize, and here's the key, with as many senses as possible. So how they see themselves, how the room looks, to use your, your example of giving a presentation in front of someone. You know, how does it smell? How does it taste? That may be a, a, a stretch, obviously, but the likelihoods kinesthetically, how does the room feel if I'm sitting down or behind a podium or whatnot? 
If I do that, if I practice visualizing that five or six or seven times in my mind, the first time it actually happens in reality is the seventh or eighth time my brain has seen it. So thus, it copes better, right? It's ready. It's prepared. Now, in my world, the ideal performer is one that learns to control the human stress response in high-pressure, high-performance situations. So the more that we get individuals to, to preemptively visualize what they're likely to see, then they should not experience a stress response and should cope better. There's a very famous neurologist who said, if your brain is wired, if your brain is firing, your brain is wiring. So again, this is almost like free brain training. The more that you visualize, we know that the neurons in the brain are acting accordingly. They're starting to, you know, develop those networks. And then all of a sudden, we have a very confident performer who, whose brain has seen this before. And they just seamlessly go through their process. So, yeah, I'm really into mindfulness and meditation. I think what I hear sometimes from those teachers is neurons that fire together, wired together, right? So it's the same same thing you're yeah you're talking about there. I almost wonder if visualization is a poor name for the actual thing that you're doing because that makes it seem like it's only what do you see versus what do you hear out there in the crowd or what do you taste and that kind of thing. I'm glad you said that. To be in in the book, we talk about you know changing the word to maybe sensorization because I think it's really trying to get you know adults or youth to think about hey how are we sensorizing what I'm about to do whatever that is whether it's a presentation in front of a class or whether it's a soccer field performance it doesn't matter what it is so yeah and visualization has some potential baggage depending on who you're talking to as well so uh, you know exactly that's it's all good. I, wa- I want to go back to the Dodgers, and this might just be nerd- me nerding out on a-, on a detail, but something I focused on, you mentioned working with the relief pitchers and that you had uh, interviewed and-, and profiled them, right? And so I- I'm getting a sense of that you- there was some kind of assessment and uh, you knew how they were going to show up, especially in-, in-, in the toughest moments. And I'm-, I'm wondering if there's anything, if possible, you can share from that process and I'm curious, like, how a ruckus maker might translate that to the interview process in a school. Yeah. So I look. I, I don't want to talk about the Dodgers in particular. I'll tell you that every professional sport team, you know, whether it's basketball, football, baseball, right? Obviously, when they think about drafting talent or talent acquisition, there are a number of things they're looking at. They're looking at physical talent. They're looking at nutritional profile, strength and conditioning. And then the best teams, the good teams are looking at what's above the neck and between the ears. So there are psychological types of assessments that really do look at traits. And so they can get a baseline. And then most importantly, how do we then have that baseline so we can help that person become the best version of themselves? How do we then get them to increase or improve certain trait areas? How that could be applied to ruckus makers within schools or within the youth? You know, I think it is important to kind of measure at some level baseline traits, if you will, or attributes. And then with an empirically based approach, how do we then have ways to improve those trait areas that deliver on whatever field he or she is performing in, whether that's business, whether that's school, whether that's, you know, athletics, et cetera. So, yeah, I think it's important to obviously the Dodger, I, you know, they're, Plenty of teams that do this, you know, money ball and kind of look at the cognitive personality sure, approach sure. On, yeah. on how that's going to deliver in the end. So, 
So get that get that baseline, get a sense of uh, how people sort of naturally are, are performing and showing up, and then have uh, evidence-based practices that help them grow in areas that matter to you and your organization. Does that sound right? Hundred percent. And I think that, you know, at the end of the day, you want to measure strengths. And one of my least favorite words is weakness. And a lot of these assessments, you know, unfor- unfortunately characterize certain attributes as maybe a weakness compared to whatever a normative sample is. I don't like that word. I like the word, you know, areas for growth. Every single person, every single child has areas for growth. And I think it's incumbent upon the ecosystem, the village the mentors, the teachers, the coaches to identify those areas and then help him or her become a better version of themselves in those areas. So what's your point of view on like strengths and uh, areas of growth? Because some people are like all in on the strengths, just make those great and build a team around you to, you know, sort of supplement your areas of growth. But how, how do you think about that? I, I kind of are, I'm in the middle. I, I, I like both, meaning I often when I work with clients, I'll tell them to look at the top three or four strength areas and continue to leverage those because di- by definition, those are outlier traits, meaning they're a separator between you and the cohort you're being measured against. So I do think it's important to leverage our strengths. At the same time, I think it's important to choose two or three areas for growth every quarter, six, every six months, every year, and double and triple down on what am I doing to strengthen those muscles? You know, what am I reading? What podcasts? What curricula, et cetera? So, right. There's a small book called Bumpers. I mean, this, believe me, this show is all about you, but I want to bring this one into uh, our conversation just because I think you might find the perspective interesting. But it was only like 30 pages and was a super powerful and influential book in my life. But one of the core things that it taught me was like, if you can eliminate your worst performance per day, per week, per month, right? And you thought about just performance like a math equation, doing that is going to raise your average, right? Performance just almost immediately overnight. And uh, I had never considered that. So anyways, I'm sure you have, you're much smarter than me, but uh, I thought it was a cool idea and just wanted to throw that out there for you and for the listener. That's great. So let's let's talk about why planning vacations. It might be easier that folks have a better process for planning vacations versus achieving performance goals. Yeah, so we have, really there are five main differentiator areas when you look at the best performers in the world compared to others. And, and those areas really are about kind of identity and values, you know, who they are, uh, mindset, process, which you talked about, and then adversity tolerance, and then balance slash recovery. On the process side, we, we devote an entire chapter through, you know, great stories of, you know, high-end performers talking about how they've learned a certain process to become better performers. And I think at the end of the day, the, the bottom line is amateurs focus on outcome. Too many of us are so outcome-based, whether, you know, I want grade if I'm a student right. or I want a certain job or I want the trophy, whatever it may be. I want to lose X amount of pounds, outcome, outcome, outcome. But really, when you look at the best performers in the world, they're focusing on a process and a recipe. And and they double and triple down on being consistent and efficient with a process that chips away through segments, through time. And ultimately, they know if they stay true to that process, they're going to achieve the outcomes more times than not. Now, to, to your question. Unfortunately, the human being often has a bias towards action. When I feel like I'm not meeting the outcomes that I want, e.g. grades, 
trophies, whatever, whatever you define performance. But in this case, we're thinking about how we're educating our youth. Oftentimes, students will become extremely outcome-based. And I'm, I'm not naive. It's important for college, for progression, all of those things. And what happens is people, when they're not meeting the outcomes, they throw the proverbial baby out with the bathwater. They make a change to everything, right? If you're a professional athlete and you go through that proverbial slump, that's the equivalent of an athlete saying, I want to change my entire golf swing or change my entire baseball stance. And if you think about it, that's preposterous, right? Because these are world-class individuals that are going through a natural slump. So what we want people to do is think about including our youth. Okay, if you're going to make a change, make sure you surround yourself with an ecosystem of trusted, valid, vetted people who can give you feedback, teachers, coaches, parents. And then make one change at a time and measure that change. Because then you're going to be able to see, am I affecting incremental value in making that change versus changing everything? And then if in fact you do have a performance outcome difference, you have no idea what led to that. You've changed too much. Right. I think two points I want to reflect back to you and to the the ruckus maker listening. Because this happens, this is actually very common in education. Oh, the test scores weren't there or whatever. I'm getting rid of the staff, right? We're changing the entire curriculum. It's like, we're going to redesign the, the entire thing. And if I heard you correctly, it's like, no, focus on process inputs, what's in your control and change a part of it and measure what that change, you know, has made. So that's point one. I wanted to reflect back. Point two. And it's unabashedly just reminding the ruckus maker listening, we have a community, right, for our leaders to help that support their um, development and growth. But I think trusted advisors are so important, right? And uh, not taking uh, advice from baristas. <laughs> As that, that story in the book, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's important. I, I really do. And, I, you know, we challenge the reader to, and to sound somewhat, egocentric, but really you're in charge of your own life and your own career and who is on your board of directors, right? And I think it's important to surround ourselves with, it doesn't have to be 85, 90 people, just three or four trusted advisors. Maybe Mm -hmm. one or two of them are outside of your craft or outside of your discipline. Maybe one or two are within or mentors and they can give you honest, you know, clear feedback about what they see as well. Mm -hmm. To your point earlier about, you know, in the educational system, perhaps maybe a knee-jerk reaction to making change. One of the things that I would want to remind the ruckus maker audience is that there is something called regression to the mean. So whenever scores or batting averages or touchdown averages or whatever metric you want to measure, whenever those decline or slump, there is going to be a natural progression or regression towards one's mean. If I go over 10, I can make a change or I can pause and say, okay, I'm going to stay true to the process, stay true to the recipe, the testing, the educators, whatever it may be. And then know that I may go five for six and the test scores may then ebb higher the next time. So we need to consciously be aware of the ebb and flow of things, not just making an episodic decision. Yeah. Well, that's powerful as well. If you pause for a minute and it goes back to, you know, the mean, um, I don't know if any schools that actually just say, okay, let's, let's take a breath here. Right. So that's a, that's a very um, interesting, interesting point. And again, just one more, just for a ruckus maker listening, you know, we, we've 
30 seconds of how this show got started, right? I felt that leadership development opportunities didn't really exist for me, right? At least they weren't provided by the system where I work. So Eric, I could either throw a pity party and say, oh, I'm the administrator with the worst, you know, mentorship or whatever. Or I picked up this microphone, talked to the Eric's of the world, learned from, you know, your stories of success and failure and took action on an idea you, you gave me and it changed my life. All of a sudden, people started asking me for support and answers. And then I'm sure you've heard of uh, the concept of a mastermind, but I introduced that to education. And now we gather school leaders on a regular basis to sort out the challenges of education. But again, back to the trusted advisors and the piece that's uh, non-educated related, we don't read any books in education. We learn from, not because education is broken, but because we want to have more tools, right? To put in our tool set and that kind of thing. So uh, I think this is a good spot. Take a quick break uh, to get some messages in from our sponsors. And and when we come back, I'd like to uh, hear more about how you use your calendar. And maybe that's a place where you could actually operationalize and put your process on the paper. Teachers love the support that IXL provides in the classroom and ruckus makers love it as well because IXL also gives school leaders meaningful insights into every level. Put your finger on the pulse of student performance via the IXL dashboard or drill down to see progress and growth for individual students. You can even customize reports to hone in on the information that matters most to you. IXL helps ruckus makers make data-informed decisions that will benefit their student growth goals. Get started today at IXL.com slash leaders. That's IXL.com slash leaders. In post-pandemic classrooms, student talk is crucial. And when classrooms come alive with conversation, teachers and students both thrive. TeachFX helps teachers make it happen. The TeachFX instructional coaching app provides insights into student talk, effective questions, and classroom conversation quality. TeachFX professional development complements the app and empowers teachers with best practices for generating meaningful student discourse. Teachers using TeachFX increase their student talk by an average of 40%. Imagine that, 40% more ownership over the class by students. Ruckus makers can pilot TeachFX with their teachers. Visit teachfx.com slash better leaders to learn how. That's teachfx.com forward slash better leaders. Here's the truth. Many teachers and leaders are facing challenges that leave them overwhelmed and discouraged. That's why I want to introduce you to a powerful resource that can help you turn things around. Executive Functions for Every Classroom is a must-read book that equips teachers with the strategies and tools to support their students in developing essential executive functioning skills. With these skills, your students will become better planners, more focused, and better equipped to meet the high expectations you have for them. This book is more than theory. It shows teachers how to implement a predictable learning routine that models these skills in real-life situations. Every student on your campus will benefit, so head over to OrganizeBinder.com slash book to get executive functions for every classroom for yourself and all your teachers. That's OrganizeBinder.com slash book. 
All right. And we're back with Eric Potterat, and he has an excellent book. Ruckus Maker Approved. Everybody pick it up. It's called Learned Excellence. I love it. In uh, so practical, actionable, and, and great storytelling as well. And this, you know, sometimes I, I highly recommend people mastering the fundamentals, you know? And so I, I, don't, I don't consider this like a sexy idea or something. It's like, use your calendar. But when you, when you talk to leaders, you know, show me the bank account, show me calendar. I know what you value. I'm always, I don't know why I'm surprised, but I'll see a calendar with like one thing on it, you know? So teach us how to use the calendar, Eric. Yeah. So essentially this is reverse engineering, you know, more excellence. So when you deal with thousands of the world's best performers in multiple disciplines, you start to see things that they're doing differently. And I'll just kind of titrate it down to the most essentials. Essentially, all of us have the exact same 24 hours every day, right? I mean, I I know that sounds preposterously simple, but there are 24 hours in a day. If we pay the tax, as it were, of sleep of eight hours, the National Institute of Health says that we and our youth need seven to nine hours of sleep a night. I know that will ebb and flow, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more, but generally we pay the tax of sleep. That leaves 16 hours. So the world's best performers or the world's worst performers have the same 16 hours every day. So for me, it became simple. As you as you start to interview these incredible people, they are just using their time, their currency, and we use that metaphor. I know it's a, a bit cheeky, time is money, but it really is the most important currency that all of us have is time. So when you look at calendars, one of the challenges that I invite the reader and now the ruckus makers to think about is where is and how much white space exists in your calendar and why is it there? And, and the reason I don't like white space, and there's going to be some resistance to this, is white space is letting life dictate to you or the audience member, the ruckus maker, what's important, as opposed to fencing that time and saying, no, I'm going to spend my currency of time doing these things. So there's something called zero-sum calendaring, which is fine. We go one step further in the book. We really like color coding. So we ask the audience member to act as an elite performer, eliminate white space, and don't please interpret that as meaning, well, where's my free time? Free time is there. You just have to fence it. You have to call it that. This is my time right. for thinking. I'm an hour thinking here, an hour of reading, an hour of yoga. I'm agnostic as to how you spend that currency. I don't care. Sure. But we know if things are in writing, they're actually more likely to happen. And we go out to the statistics of that in the book as well. So the last thing I'll say is we color code. So we add the color coding to the calendar and time management as well. If something is red, it's not moving. That's really heavily weighted as an important time. That could be an anniversary, a birthday, a client meeting. This podcast with you is a red for me. Yellow is something that we recommend someone putting down that is movable, but they prefer not to move. So for me, I'm going to offend my dentist, but that can be a dental appointment. I can move <laughs> I'm not going to tell them, so it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then lastly would be green. Green are things that you can move. Maybe that's the yoga. Maybe that's a workout. Maybe that's whatever. And if you fill that, you eliminate the white space and fill it, you find that efficiency goes up incredibly. I mean, it's profound. So you start to then act as an elite performer. They're just leveraging their currency of time markedly differently. And there's a volitional piece. They're choosing what they're doing in the time as opposed to 
let's be honest with each other. When white space exists, the human being, sometimes that P word comes, procrastination, Mm -hmm. and it just happens and it prevents that from happening. So So I guess on some level, you have to have a sober conversation with yourself and decide like what kind of person, leader, performer you want to be, right? There's no right or wrong or whatever, but if you are going for top 1% excellence and that's something you aspire to be, this is the way. Like, there's no doubt about it. Yeah, so very, very interesting. I appreciate you breaking down the color coding too because that's something that you've taught me. I haven't done that. I had just regular colors and then green for money-making activities, but now I now I can uh, change that for movable things that, um, you know, could be moved, but prefer not to, and then things that I can't move. So appreciate that very much. So that, that hits calendars. And let's talk breathing. You know, uh, you, you might find it interesting. I think my ideal breath is 6.5 per minute, right? Great. So it's 3.7 in and 5.5 out. And uh, I try to do that 20 minutes twice a day for HRV, you know, and improving that. But you talk about a 4444 breathing method and do you care to explain that to the ruckus maker listening? Yeah, at the risk of offending anyone who is tied to other breathing methods, you know, please, you, you're allowed to take me off your Christmas or Hanukkah list. That's okay. <laughs> I'm not a fan of box breathing. I'm just not. I don't think there are many organisms on the planet that hold their breath to control the human stress response. So as a result of that, we just go back and we document in the book what the research tells us. And this could be taught to youth as well for the administration, et cetera, down. So the technique that we really like, really fundamentally, as you precisely said, when you look at the research, breathing rates when people are in high pressure situations or stressed, and we can use quote unquote for stress, whether that's a math final, calculus, social studies project, I'm trying to put it in the context of students as well. Whenever high performance kicks in, high leverage situation, we know for a fact that most human beings in high stress or higher stress situations, their breathing rates go from anywhere from 16 to 22 breaths a minute. So it's rapid, shallow breathing that increases muscle tension, that increases or decreases the ability to problem solve and practice kind of frontal lobe functions of executive functions, abstract thought, et cetera. So we know that affects the human being negatively. We know that. When you look at how to offset that, ideally, so not only physiologically, but cognitively, literally ideal good things happen at about six breaths per minute. You had mentioned six and a half, which is great, but six breaths a minute plus or minus is where kind of that human homeostasis is and the best cognitive thinking, the best abstract thinking, problem solving, et cetera, happens. So It doesn't take a brain surgeon to figure out that maybe the best way to modify breathing prior to or during high performance situations is to try to exact those six breaths a minute. And a way to do that is we call them 444 breathing or the theory of fours breathing. It's four seconds in, no hold, just a natural pause at the top, and then roughly six seconds of exhale. So four to six seconds of exhale. You do the math, four plus six is 10, and that's roughly six breaths a minute. So what we find is after about two minutes, and I want to invite the ruckus makers and the audience to not only practice it themselves, but get the students to start doing this as well, you start to feel it. I mean, literally, this is one of the quickest ways to reverse the human stress response. 
It causes, you know, vasodilation, that diaphragmatic breathing, which then affects cognitive performance on, you know, very, very positively. So, yeah. And linking it to a calendar, you have a unmovable, contentious meeting with a parent coming up. And can you just put five minutes of this kind of four, six breathing in ahead, ahead and you're going to be served by that, I would think. Exactly. It is something, you know, we don't need to go down this rabbit hole too much, but it's the only thing that you can absolutely control, right? I mean, that's, mm. I can't control the outside stressors of maybe a parent that's going to come in frustrated, um, but I can control my breathing and how I'm preparing for that so that I know that all, all the blood is going to go to the important part of my brain mm. to be able to problem solve, to be able to answer their difficult questions, et cetera. So, the other thing that comes up is sometimes people say students, athletes, first responders, well, you know, I don't have the time to do this or yeah, you do. I mean, just, <laughs> and if you're worried about what people are thinking, if they're looking at the way you're breathing, then go to the restroom, close the stall and, you know, do it on the john. So it's, it's really not hard to find a few minutes to kind of decompress and, and get your cognitive state ready to perform. So, yeah, that's what elite performers do. So I think last book question, I just want to talk re recovery. And uh, I don't know if, if you're familiar with um, Dr. Michael Gervais. I've, I've listened to his podcast, Finding Mastery, before. But he has a quote that I always love that I think you'll um, agree with. But basically, he says, you know, at the world stage, all these elite performers, they're all hard workers, right? And these amazing physical specimens or whatever. And so they, they don't talk about like how much time they put in the gym or how hard they work because everybody's doing that. And so the thing that they find interesting to discuss is like, how are they recuperating? How do they recover in order to enhance performance? And so, and I know you end your book there in your framework, that last piece is about re recovery. So any, any, um, well, maybe personally, what works for you? What do you like for recovery? Yeah. So first of all, I'm not familiar with, with his work. Secondly, when you look at these elite performers, they, they really do double and triple down on the balance piece and also think of themselves as very high-end performers, kind of like a high-end sports car. You can only yeah. you know, have that engine going at those RPMs for so long before you need to give it some garage time. So I think, you know, we, we interview a lot of high performers in the book and there, you know, there's a lot of research out there, right? Sleep is probably the best thing you can do to recover. Yoga, float tanks, nutrition, nature walks. I mean, again, I'm agnostic onto how you're getting that garage time, as it were, but it is really important. For me, it's exercise. For me, it's nature time. You asked specifically. Yeah. We split time between our home here in San Diego and, and another home in Montana. And I really, that's for me, my recovery time. Just getting out nature, skiing, hiking, mountain biking, et cetera. So... Yeah. Well, Ruckus Maker, you're worth it. And uh, if you want to create more value for your school, your campus, you certainly need to figure out uh, this recovery piece and how it would feel good for you. All right. So to the last questions I asked all my guests, Eric, number one, if you could put a message right on all school marquees for a single day, what would your message be? Run away from the narrative of I can never do what he or she is doing. It's patently false. Uh, I think there's a there's an underlying belief in our culture, in our society, that certain high-end performers were just born with certain advantages, whether they're, you know, athletic advantages, intellectual advantages, process advantages. And, and I think it's, I think I would want to educate kids in every school that that is a literally a patently false narrative. When you unpack 
literally as we did in the book from multiple disciplines. I mean, we're looking at CIA officers, SEALs, businessmen and women, first responders, Cirque du Soleil, surgeons, to a man and to a woman. What got them there was learned. So run away. Here's my marquee. Run away from the narrative of he or she was born that way. It is absolutely false. They've learned it. Right. And so uh, now you're building your dream school. You're not constrained by any resources. Your only limitations, your ability to imagine. So what would your three guiding principles be building this school? So my first one, and boy, you're you're tempting me here to um, not hop on my soapbox too much. And I will say there's from my optic, and I don't want to make any of your ruckus makers, audience members angry, but from my optic, a lot of the principles and disciplines we unpack in the book, they ought to be in curricula. Uh, I, I firmly believe that we need to start teaching these kids principles earlier. That said, uh, my top one would be learn by doing as well. You know, death by PowerPoint, death by instruction only, or learning that way, I think is, again, I don't want to offend any audience members. Anybody listening to this is going to agree with you. <laughs> so it's okay. Yeah, I just, I really like this concept. Uh, first, you need to teach, obviously, the fundamentals, but then there has to be an avenue or a process in place to have he and sh- he and or she practice what they've just learned in doing them actually. So that would be number one. Number two would be preparation with adversity tolerance. There isn't much in the, and I'm not a tough guy at all, uh, but there isn't much in the world I fear except about a 25 to 30 year old who is in the working world who doesn't know how to handle adversity. And this is why Alan and I talk about this near the very end of the book, that these principles need to start moving far, far upstream. We need to start from a practical standpoint teaching our youth adversity tolerance tactics that control the human stress response and thusly allow these individuals to think on their feet during adversity. So number two principle would be to absolutely programmatize adversity tolerance techniques that are evidence-based and make them those part of the curriculum and, and include those for sure. 100%. I'm very convicted about that for sure. We know they're going to think better. We know that the world is, the uncertainty is only going to continue, right? Whether it's the pandemic, supply lines, supply chains, economy, et cetera, the world is a difficult place and we need our youth to know how to do that. And then I think thirdly would be to get the students to understand that they choose their mindset. Mindset is not, again, something that they're born with. So I would invite them early on the schools to to have the students understand that they have they play multiple roles. They're there that day as a student, but they're also a son or a daughter. They're also a community member. And to have and be able to choose different mindsets for those roles and to learn strategies to how to kind of codify that mindset for today I'm at school, I'm going all in as a student and then make a transition. Now I'm going to be a friend. Now I'm going to be a son or a daughter, and really to try to leave school at school and home at home to teach them that they control, they choose the mindset for the role that they play. Yeah. Thanks for touching on those principles. And just reminding the ruckus maker listening, 
uh, to pick up learned excellence, you know, that five-part framework is values and goals, mindset, process, adversity, tolerance, and then balance and recovery. We couldn't cover everything, obviously, in a short conversation. But again, I can't recommend this book highly enough. So we covered a lot of ground, Eric, of everything we discussed. What's the one thing you want a ruckus maker to remember? Keep challenging yourself to grow and don't settle. I mean, I think that it sounds a little bit like, you know, a fortune cookie or a Yodaism, but I think that ultimately, I think a lot of the ruckus makers are in positions of power and the positions of, you know, high authority and don't let that get to your head and continue to kind of branch out and don't settle and continue to kind of move and be comfortable being incrementally uncomfortable. And I think that gets modeled for all of the people that they're working with within their ecosystems as well. And I think that modeling is really good because it tells community members, it tells family members, it tells students that, hey, this person, although they're in a position of power and authority, they continue to embrace incremental levels of discomfort and learning. So, Thanks for listening to the Better Leaders, Better Schools podcast, Ruckus Maker. How would you like to lead with confidence, swap exhaustion for energy, Turn your critics into cheerleaders and so much more. The Ruckus Maker Mastermind is a world-class leadership program designed for growth-minded school leaders just like you. Go to betterleadersbetterschools.com slash mastermind. Learn more about our program and fill out the application. We'll be in touch within 48 hours to talk how we can help you be even more effective. And by the way, we have cohorts that are diverse and mixed up We also have cohorts just for women in leadership and a BIPOC-only cohort as well. When you're ready to level up, go to betterleadersbetterschools.com slash mastermind and fill out the application. Thanks again for listening to the show. Bye for now and go make a ruckus. Ruckus Maker.